Hello to my fellow Americans, by which I mean every person on planet Earth. In this podcast, if you want to be an American, you count as one. Welcome to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and this is the podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. Are they better than Washington? We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who showed up for the cake. This episode is part two of our discussion of the fifth year of George Washington's presidency, March 4th, 1793 to March 31st, 1794. Last year, we talked about the economy, diplomacy, and war scores for Washington. So this year, we will talk about the civil rights, integrity, and bipartisanship scores for Washington. Can Washington be, once again, better than Washington? All jokes aside, however, if you read the content notes before listening to this episode, you might already be aware of this, but just to be clear, There is a content warning for this episode, and I will have marked this episode as explicit in the content options when I publish this on Anchor.fm. The reason for that is because part of the discussion we'll be having today, and actually one of the very first things we'll talk about today, does require us to have a very frank discussion of sexual assault. If you are not able to listen to this episode for that reason, Just letting everyone know, we will be discussing sexual assault, we'll be discussing it frankly. Please be prepared for that discussion in a couple minutes here. I will actually include the time code for that discussion as well in the notes, so that you can just move the audio player ahead until you're past that part. So you can still listen to the episode and not that part if you so choose. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about civil rights, since that is the first metric we'll be discussing today. Last year, when they passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, Congress kind of blew it. And because he signed it into law and decided to actually enforce it, Washington kind of blew it. Again, from the civil rights perspective, which, I mean, should just be the average perspective, but, you know. So what about this year? Have they continued to blow it? Unfortunately, yes. What's worse, at least from a perspective of how you want to paint your bad guys. What's even worse is that they actually tried to not blow it. They intentionally did something they thought they would make the world a better place and ended up having the exact opposite consequence. You know, a perverse consequence. So they tried not to blow it, but they ended up blowing it. On March 22nd, 1794, Congress passed the... Oh wow, that's gonna be a long name. Alright, hold on. Congress passed the act to prohibit the carrying on the slave trade from the United States to any foreign place or country. God, that's a long name. Luckily, it has a shorter nickname, the Slave Trade Act of 1794. The act made it federally illegal for American ships to transport people across nations and continents so they could be sold into slavery. So American ships could not import or export human beings. Thank God for that. Also, foreign ships could not export anyone who was enslaved from the United States to another nation. That is also a very good thing. However, there's a key part missing from this law. Nowhere is it illegal for foreign ships to import and sell people into slavery once they reach the United States. So people can still be sold into slavery in the U.S. 
Moreover, nothing in this law actually provides methods, recommendations, or provisions or pressures to actually outlaw slavery in the United States. God, it really fell short here, guys. <laughs> it's really not great. I described the Slave Trade Act of 1794 as a bipartisan bill. What exactly did I mean by that? Well, last episode, when we talked about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, we were discussing how that empowered the slave trade to sustain itself. So members of Congress who were abolitionists, most notably Vice President John Adams, were looking for a way to curb slavery. Really, they were desperate for any kind of win. However, these same abolitionists, including John Boy over there, were terrified of splitting the nation apart. See, every time the prospect of abolition was brought up, the pro-slavery southern state representatives would make vague threats about poverty, violence, and division spreading across the country. They were really good at making these problems sound like boogeymen appearing out of nowhere rather than intentional reactions made by greedy racists, including themselves. So, Adams and the Abolitionists, which is a great band name, by the way, wanted to create a gentle incentive to encourage slave owners to adopt the manumission model rather than continue to engage in slavery into perpetuity. Manumission, of course, is the process by which you slowly wean yourself off of the use of slave labor. It's not a good thing because you're still relying on slave labor and still participating, but it's like, you know, that gradual weaning process is meant to make it so you no longer use slaves nor your descendants have slaves to use. Again, kind of going back to our discussion about Man Anthony Wayne last week, it's not good, but it's better than just letting slavery exist forever. So that is that was kind of the goal of this bill was to have the southern states move to manumission and adjust themselves to life without slavery rather than just outlawing it outright, again, because of all those threats of, you know, division that the southern states were making sound inevitable rather than intentional decisions by angry people mad at the government. There was also a hope that the gentle pressure caused by the Slave Trade Act would encourage slave owners to treat the people they kept in servitude as a more valuable asset rather than disposable tools, and so they drafted the Slave Trade Act and it managed to be passed. Now, those statements I just made are assuming that the Slave Trade Act intentions were pure, and I, at least for the purposes of this podcast, I would like to believe that that is a correct assessment. I want to believe that they were really trying to do something right here. But if you happen to have casual knowledge of American history, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, slavery kept happening until the Civil War. And you're right. The institution of slavery continued to exist and really only intensified as a result of the Slave Trade Act. The main reason why it didn't go anywhere are because one, there's nothing that the avaricious love more than finding ways to get as much money as possible at all times, so they doubled down on using slave labor. And two, there is nothing racists love more than rules and ideas that make their race seem more important than others, so they doubled down. And three, plantation owners were both avaricious and racist, so they had absolutely no motive to give up slavery and every motive to maintain it. On top of those psychological drives, there were also a couple legal and cultural factors that further encouraged the continued existence of slavery. Specifically, these forces were better at encouraging the slave trade's existence than the Slave Trade Act was at encouraging its demise. 
The first of these problems was partis sequitur ventrum, a legal policy virtually every state at the time followed. PSB defined the legal status of people born into the United States by the legal status of their mother. Thus, whenever an enslaved woman gave birth, that child was also born into slavery and would spend the rest of their life legally considered a slave. So before the Slave Trade Act existed, plantation owners had two ways to increase their supply of free labor. Import African people so they could be enslaved, or wait until the African-American women they had enslaved gave birth. Now that the former supply was being restricted, the plantation owners chose to maintain the latter supply at all costs. This meant abusing the Fugitive Slave Act, promoting all manner of propaganda and political policy that treated Africans and African Americans as less than human, and therefore could be treated as breeding animals rather than actual human beings, and any other measure they could think of to have more babies born into slavery. This is the part of the episode I warned you about in the content description. Please be sure to skip ahead if this is not a topic you are able to hear about at this time. When I say that plantation owners would use any measure to have more babies born into slavery, I am talking about the repeated sexual abuse of enslaved women. While it is also true that men and children were sexually abused repeatedly as well, these sexual abuses did not produce children, so for the purposes of this part of the discussion, I will be explicitly talking about the sexual abuse of enslaved women. First, there were the forced marriages of enslaved women to enslaved men specifically so they could copulate, which was a form of sexual abuse for men as well. Every plantation owner participated in the forced marriage system to some degree. The reason this is sexual abuse, in case you are not aware, is that once couples were married, they were encouraged to produce children, and if they failed to produce children by means that were considered unacceptable to the plantation owner, they could experience punishments of varying severity. So by creating a situation where you tell people they have a choice, but then you punish them for making any choice other than the one you want them to make, you are not actually giving them a choice. Therefore, you are not actually respecting their consent. So yes, forced marriage is a form of sexual abuse in case anybody was not clear on that. Additionally, Many plantation owners, as well as any other white men with access to the physical property and the enslaved people kept on the property, would sexually assault enslaved women and underage girls. While rape was often motivated as a disgusting pastime for the men of the plantation or as a form of punishment for enslaved women, these rapes sometimes also resulted in another baby born into slavery. Some women and children were even designated as fancy ladies, which is the word of the plantation owner, not my terminology, who were tasked at the risk of physical violence to serve as prostitutes. But even plantation owners who claimed to be maintaining consensual relationships with slaves, such as Thomas Jefferson, were not doing anything consensually. Again, you're given two options, date the plantation owner or risk a variety of punishments for not dating the plantation owner, so you don't actually have a choice in that situation. 
So yes, there was a method to keep slavery alive in light of the Slave Trade Act, and that method increased the amount of cruelty enslaved women and girls could expect to experience. The use of sexual violence to force pregnancy and therefore increase the labor force created an economic incentive to an otherwise perverse act that people were already engaging in. It increased the amount of cruelty that enslaved people had to experience, and it made it beneficial economically to engage in that cruelty. It was a massive, possibly intentional, oversight of both Congress and George Washington himself to not consider the venomous actions corrupt businessmen will take to cling to their corpulent profits. If a rich person can get richer off of sexual assault, then they will engage in sexual assault, as history has proven. The second factor that encouraged the continuation of slavery even in light of the Slave Trade Act was a sharp increase in the demand for farm labor. On March 14, 1794, the United States granted the patent for the modern cotton gin to Eli Whitney. Between this invention, as well as other inventions of the soon-to-come Industrial Revolution, such as Samuel Slater's textile innovations, the growing and cultivating of upland short cotton became a valuable commodity. And as a brief sidebar, I know Whitney gets the credit for building the modern cotton gin, but there were other plans for the cotton gin existing at the same time, and multiple people who had copied his cotton gin, but added their own spin to it, so it's actually very hard to tell whether Whitney deserves that credit. Regardless, cotton was the new hotness because people could suddenly make money off of it for the industry, and the cotton gin made it possible to cheaply produce it so you could then sell it at a high markup. This demand created a new supply, so the agricultural-friendly environment of the southern states was the best place to grow cotton. Thus, cotton plantations were being built to grow and harvest the cotton using Whitney's state-of-the-art cotton gin, or someone else's state-of-the-art cotton gin. Again, there were multiple people claiming to have actually invented it. But the people who built those plantations wanted slaves to staff them. After all, paying people wages and treating them like people with limited work hours would mean that the cotton plantation owner would only become stinking rich instead of filthy stinking rich. Therefore, the demand for new slaves increased. So, what we have is a law that was intended to improve civil rights, but did nothing to stop the everyday loss of human rights. It was an attempted step towards abolition that simply did not work. So, Washington's civil rights score is not doing so hot this year. Which is a shame because for someone as invested in the slave trade as he is, going against his own best interest to sign the Slave Trade Act of 1794 is a big deal. And just to clarify my point here, a lot of historians point to the fact that Washington freed some of the people enslaved on Mount Vernon as evidence that he was somehow a manumissionist or anti-slavery or what have you. But in reality, most of the people who were enslaved on Mount Vernon were considered Martha Washington's property because she was the one who originally, I hate to use the word possession, but legally speaking, she was the one who 
had them. And then they became George's when they were married. And then after George died, the ones that he did not directly liberate from slavery were still enslaved under Martha Washington's care and possibly even the care of her children after she died. So, you know, he was clearly cool with keeping slaves around and that's not a good thing. But what is a good thing is acting against your interests to provide a benefit for the nation. And that's kind of the narrative I'm going for here. Washington signed the Slave Trade Act into law. He clearly was doing something to benefit the nation that would have made it harder for him to continue his own lifestyle, even if only slightly. That is the kind of selflessness we don't often see in presidents. And I was willing to bend over backwards to give Washington the best possible civil rights score as a result of his apparent selflessness. Like, I really wanted to give him more credit than he deserves. But as we've seen with just how horrendous the results of the Slave Trade Act are, even though those were the unintended consequences and the exact opposite consequences of those intended, I just can't in good conscience reward Washington for this. We're just going to have to give Washington a negative one for civil rights this year. And even that might be too generous. I don't know. The next thing we look at in order to figure out how effective of a president Washington was is his integrity of office. Just because the president has a duty to uphold the law and protect the nation does not mean they always fulfill that duty. So what duties did Washington not fulfill or fulfill? And what actions did he take that he should have never taken? And of course, we also need to ask the same questions about everyone Washington appointed. To answer these questions, we're going to look to the flaming bag of dog poop Washington has left to burn on his front porch, the Whiskey Rebellion. For the past two years, frontier farmers, especially those in Pennsylvania, just a few miles outside of Philadelphia, have been using both threats of violence and actual violence against tax collectors and civilians accused of assisting tax collectors. All of this was in response to a couple of cents owed per gallon of whiskey brewed, which really hampered the ability of frontier farmers to improve their economics, but that's still no reason for this violence. Even though the whiskey tax was unfair, violence was not the answer. Also, it's worth noting that the people affected by the whiskey tax were not all whiskey rebels. Some people chose nonviolent forms of resisting the tax, and those people I'm not complaining about in this podcast. So, did Washington finally do something about the whiskey rebellion? Not really. On November 22, 1793, a group of armed men in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, stormed the home of tax official Benjamin Wells. Ben was forced to sign a letter of resignation at gunpoint. When Washington found out about this, his response was to offer a reward for information about the gunmen. But no one took him up on the offer because everyone was too scared of the violent counterreaction, and Washington continued to not consider that a serious thing. So, Washington did the least he could do. Actually, he did less than the least he could do, if we're being honest with ourselves and it obviously was not enough. But at least the Benjamin Wells affair got some kind of reaction out of George. Earlier in June, John Neville, the tax professional who couldn't even rent an office because of the whiskey terrorists, was burned in effigy in front of a crowd of 100 people. I know burning people in effigy is kind of a cartoonish display of anger in our modern-day society, 
since there are so many other ways of communicating death threats, but in the time period that we are talking about, burning an effigy, putting a straw paper cartoon version of somebody and setting it on fire, was considered one of the most serious forms of death threats available. And so when you get burned in effigy, that is a very serious threat on your life. And you would have expected the President of the United States to do something about his professionals hired by him to have some kind of reaction or response to that. You know, even if it's just saying, hey, as head of state, I think that is a bad idea. Georgie Borgie couldn't even be bothered to do that. He still refuses to take the rebellion seriously. And after all that work Alexander Hamilton did to convince him about how bad the Whiskey Rebellion was, we were really expecting more from Washington this year. However, there was another act of integrity that did end up working out well as a small stress test for America's commitment to justice. Between February 4th and February 7th, 1794, the United States Supreme Court heard the case of Georgia v. Brailsford for the third and final time. As a result, it became the first trial by jury held in the Supreme Court. As a reminder, the case was a lawsuit turned criminal charge against British subject Samuel Brailsford, who was trying to collect a debt from a gentleman named James Spaulding. The plaintiff of the case was the state of Georgia, which was both the current home of Spaulding and the former residence of Brailsford. Due to a law Georgia passed during the American Revolution that laid claim to the financial assets of so-called traitors, which would include loyalists like Brailsford, the state was trying to get Brailsford to surrender the money Spaulding paid to him. Brailsford refused to pay, so Georgia accused him of being a criminal who broke their state law. Thus, after hearing arguments from the representatives of both sides of the case, the jury had to decide whether Brailsford was guilty of a crime and therefore liable to pay the state. But, thankfully for the American justice system, they ruled that Brailsford was not guilty. Brailsford got to keep his money, Georgia got to keep being salty, and Spalding got to continue going broke. But why am I considering this an important step in the history of the American justice system? Well, one of the rights that is, at least on paper, guaranteed to every citizen of the United States is the promise of a fair trial, one in which a person is assumed to be innocent until they are proven to be guilty. This simple concept is supposed to make sure that no one, no matter how unpopular or undervalued they are to society, isn't thrown in jail at the whims of the court. And Samuel Brailsford was in a position to be very unpopular to the average United States citizen. He was a British merchant who opposed the creation of their country and was now trying to choke some money out of one of their own. It's not unlikely that the jury would want to convict him because they did not like him rather than any actual guilt. But the thing is, they did not convict him. They could not prove he was guilty, therefore they kept him innocent. Thus, Georgia v. Brailsford set a precedent that helped maintain some integrity within the United States judicial system. It wasn't a perfect precedent, as there were many miscarriages of justice throughout his American history, some of which may even continue to this day. But I believe that we would live in an even worse society if the jury had declared Brailsford guilty back in the February of 1794. 
Now, there is one last presidential decision I want to discuss for integrity, but I don't want to discuss it because it's actually affecting the score this year. Rather, it's interesting to show how the presidency has evolved. See, there was this event that happened that, if it occurred today, at least half the American people would have demanded a presidential response. But, back then, there was no mechanism, expectation, or desire for a presidential response, so it would not be fair to hold Washington to a modern standard in that event. And that event I am referring to was the Yellow Fever Epidemic of 1793. The epidemic began in spring, when multitudinous French colonists and the people they kept in slavery arrived in Philadelphia by ship. The colonists were refugees escaping the revolution occurring on Haiti. No one bothered to ask the slaves if they were also refugees leaving Haiti or were brought of their own volition, but here they were. Over the spring and summer of that year, the mosquitoes that the French had accidentally brought with them on their ships began to breed in the stagnant gutter water of Philadelphia's streets, and then they would feed on the blood of the city's 50,000 residents. Thus, the mosquitoes spread yellow fever across the city. The first case of yellow fever was documented by public health officials on August 1st. By November 9th, when the last known case was documented, the city, which, as a reminder, was the capital of the federal government at the time, had lost 5,000 lives to the plague. So, as somebody who is looking up this information and recording this episode in the fall of 2021, I couldn't help but look at this plague that killed 10% of a city's population and think of the 2020 and 2021 COVID-19 pandemic that has killed more than 100 times as many people than the yellow fever epidemic, and that number has only increased between the time I looked up the statistic and the time that I've recorded this. During COVID-19, the appropriate federal response was a major political dividing point. The people who believed that preventing deaths and potential long-term health effects was worth temporary inconveniences wanted the government to create and enforce strict quarantine and vaccination programs. The people who felt that the economic limits or personal inconveniences of those programs were not worth the life-saving benefits wanted the government to do absolutely nothing. But that discussion simply didn't exist in 1793 because the knowledge of disease management didn't exist. Ignaz Semmelweis did not name unwashed hands as the cause of childbed fever until 1847, which is considered one of the earliest possible landmarks for the development of germ theory. And frankly, when he stated that in 1847, he was considered a madman. Louis Pasteur's more publicly acceptable experiments regarding germs and fermentation occurred between 1854 and 1857. Cuban physician Dr. Carlos Finlay did not discover the link between mosquitoes and yellow fever until 1881, and the United States refused to believe him until a couple American army physicians, under the direction of Walter Reed, repeated that study in 1901. The yellow fever vaccine didn't exist until 1937, and moreover, the United States did not have any form of a federal medical response system until either 1798 or 1870, depending on how you want to count it. So even though we could try to moralize and claim that Washington made the wrong decision to flee Philadelphia and serve as president remotely at Mount Vernon until November of 1793, there was no other choice he could make. The powers and responsibilities of the presidency have grown significantly in the past 232 years, 
at the time of recording. All of this is to say that when I judge Washington for mistakes I think he made, I am actually keeping historical context in mind, and I cannot fault him for doing nothing in the face of the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. And even though it's another non-factor for the score, one more integrity shout-out. The United States Senate took a gamble on February 11th, 1794, and decided to make its session that day open to the public for the first time in the history of the United States. I can only assume that the reception, both in Congress and publicly, was overwhelmingly positive, because on March 27th, the Senate voted to make open sessions the default setting for their sessions, thereby ending the previous rule that made all sessions closed to the public. More accountability for everyone. Woo-hoo! But seriously, where does that leave Washington's integrity score? Well, the Whiskey Rebellion really knocks it down a notch, but the Supreme Court is kind of bringing it back up because they're willing to fulfill their duties and actually protect the institutions that are supposed to keep the American civilians safe. And none of that would have happened if Washington had picked the wrong people to fill those roles. Also, remember the Slave Trade Act and how I really wanted to reward Washington for acting against his best interests? Well, today's, or not today, right here is where I'm going back to that and fulfilling that promise. Instead of giving him the negative one I was going to give him, I'm bumping it up to a zero. Washington gets a zero for integrity this year. Nobody can say I'm not lenient. And the last thing we always look for in a presidential year on the Better Than Washington podcast is whether the president earns or loses a point for the sake of bipartisanship. And for the first time in both the history of the podcast and the history of the Washington presidency, we are actually going to dock a point this year. There were two big challenges that Washington faced from the bipartisan perspective. First, he wrote the Proclamation of Neutrality, and that created an environment that radicalized Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. Washington did not do enough to minimize or prevent this political divide. Second, the Slave Trade Act was something that should not have been bipartisan. It should have been more forceful in ending the institution of slavery, but Washington did not advocate for that pressure because he was scared of the partisan backlash. So, in the two clear cases where we can view the interaction of partisan politics, Washington did not do enough to protect the good kind of partisanship, and he did too much to promote the bad kind of bipartisanship. Therefore, we are giving Washington negative one on bipartisanship this year. And so we conclude this year of the Washington presidency. Where does that leave our current score? Well, we gave him plus one for economy, minus one for diplomacy, plus two for war, minus one for civil rights, zero for integrity, and minus one for bipartisanship. When we combine those together, we get a total of zero. I never thought I would see any president, let alone George Washington, actually get a zero. But honestly, it's better than a negative one, which I've given him before, so I can't really complain. Yeah, that's where we leave the presidency now. Uh, George Washington, once again, fails to be better than Washington. I really hope that joke's not getting old, guys, because it's not going anywhere for a while. All right, so does anybody want fun facts? Maybe? Do we want fun facts? I'm going to give you guys fun facts. I hope you're okay with that. On September 20th, 1793, 
British troops invade the colony of Saint-Dominique in order to defeat both the French colonists and the formerly enslaved people engaging in a revolution against those colonists. Luckily for the history of Haiti, this attempt to quell the revolution does not succeed the way the British want. On November 10th, France celebrates the Goddess of Reason in Notre Dame, a somewhat pagan festival, though not really, that is the climax of the de-Christianization process they began at the start of the French Revolution. On December 9th, Noah Webster founded the American Minerva, which was the first daily newspaper of New York City. And before we move on to the first few months of 1794, there were some dates that are unclear in 1793. Dominique Jean Larray, the chief surgeon of the French Revolutionary Army, created the first battlefield ambulance service. I don't know for sure, but this could be one of the reasons why France ends up winning the War of the First Coalition. They actually had a way to take care of their wounded soldiers in the fray. Then, on January 13, 1794, Congress passed a law to create a new United States flag, one that had enough stars and stripes to represent all 15 states. A subsequent act would reverse the number of stripes back to 13. On February 4th, the French First Republic abolished slavery. No word on how that affects the Haitian Revolution and the goals the French had in fighting against it. On March 5th, a little baby boy is born. His name is Robert Cooper Greer, and he will be a future associate justice to the Supreme Court. And last but not least, on March 23rd, Britain captured the French colony of Martinique, further reducing French power in the Americas. That is it for this episode. My fellow Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. I really appreciate it, especially after an episode as heavy as this one. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. The opinions and views expressed in Better Than Washington are not necessarily reflective of any opinions or views held by Spotify, Anchor.fm, or any platform or music used in the creation of this podcast. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you're using right now. You can also sign up for monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better than Washington. If you wish to follow the podcast, please feel free to go to Twitter and find us at than Washington with a capital T and capital W. And as always, I encourage people to fact check me because I do my research online and I want to make sure that people have the opportunity to refute any claims in case I really hecked up on this one. So I do my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then use online resources in order to corroborate select claims. The resources I used include an article about the 1794 Slave Trade Act from the American Battlefields Trust website, www.battlefields.org learn. Multiple articles about the history of germs, viruses, and yellow fever, www.npr.org, www.historyofvaccines.org timeline, and www.britannica.com biography slash Louis Pasteur. I will post all of those links in the show notes as well so that so you can check these articles out for yourself. 
Alright everybody, I know this was a rougher episode, but I still hope that you had a great time listening to this podcast overall, and I hope that you have a good day in general. Farewell for now.